1780, William Wilberforce was elected to the parliament in England. Four years later, he became a Christian. And at the urging of a pastor named John Newton, Wilberforce devoted the next 50 years of his life to many causes, but one in particular. And by devoting himself to this cause, he lost many friends and opportunities. He became hated in many corners of his country. But with this particular cause, Wilberforce would say, his faith made him do it. And so in 1833, nearly 50 years after his conversation with Pastor Newton, and only three days before he died, Parliament finally passed a bill that ended slavery throughout the British Empire. And to many of us, Wilberforce is an inspiration. He is a symbol of the good a Christian can do when they apply their faith to injustice around the world. But now I have a question. Wilberforce, inspired by his faith, risked everything to oppose and dismantle slavery. But was what he did biblical? Isn't it the case that the Bible actually permits slavery? Doesn't our passage today join a long list of passages in the Bible that do not abolish slavery, but actually explain how slavery should work? The Old and New Testaments both have instructions about slavery, and in none of those instructions does it once say that slavery is wrong. So, when Wilberforce fought for the abolition of slavery, was he actually fighting against the Bible? So, each of us reads Ephesians 6, verse 5. Slaves, obey your masters. We can all read it. We all believe the Bible is God's word. And yet there is not one of us in this church that thinks slavery in any form is okay. If we are people of this book, what makes us so sure that slavery is wrong? I think it's common when Christians are reading the Bible, one of the first questions people ask is, uh, what do you hear God saying to you in this passage? It's a good question. It, it assumes that God speaks to us through the Bible, which we believe. What is God saying to you in this passage? But I want to suggest to you that there is another question, which is sometimes harder to answer, but is often a more important one to answer first. And it's this. What did the people 
who first heard this passage. In our case, a group of Christians in a city called Ephesus about 2,000 years ago. When they heard this passage, what did it sound like to them? See how that's different? So maybe the first question is not, what does this say to me? But maybe the first question is, what did this say to them? And with these passages about slavery, that is a really important question to ask. Because when you and I read these passages that talk about slavery, they sound unbelievably regressive, oppressive even. I mean, Ephesians 6 verse 5 is unthinkable to you and me. But remember, we are not asking, what do you and I hear? We are first asking, what did they hear? And to know that, you need to know a bit about ancient cultures. Of course, you know that the cultures uh, in which the Bible was written were very different from ours. In the days of the Old Testament and the New Testament, slavery was common. It was everywhere. And as far as we can tell, there was no culture in the ancient world that questioned whether slavery was good or bad. What I mean is that there was no abolitionist movement in Bible times, not in Israel, and not with any of their neighbors. There was no, it wasn't like there was like a progressive wing of politics fighting for one perspective and a conservative wing fighting for another perspective. There was only one wing. We have basically no records of people questioning slavery as an institution in ancient times. Even though in the ancient world, slavery was awful. Like slavery in our country, slaves were not really considered human. They were property. As a master, you could beat them, you could torture them, you could split them from your families, you could kill them, and and nobody else would question you. But here's a really important detail. And it's going to sound like an oxymoron at first. Hang with me. What is important for our purposes today is that compared to every other nation in the world, and certainly compared to all their neighbors, the people of the Bible were actually quite progressive when it came to slavery. Like I said, hang with me. This is what I mean. Most nations gave slaves a few days off every year for big religious festivals. But in the Old Testament, God commands Israel to let their slaves have all those religious festivals off, plus, every week, the Sabbath. It's by far the most days of rest for a slave we can find in the ancient world. Also, in most nations, slaves were never freed. You either died in slavery or you very rarely bought yourself out of slavery. In Israel, at least some slaves 
no matter what they had done to end up in slavery, had to be freed after six years. Israel was the only nation that required that when a slave was freed, you as the master had to provide money, clothes, like material assistance to help them on their way. Israel was the only nation with legal limits on disciplining your slave. You couldn't just do whatever you wanted to them. In fact, Israel was unique in the Bible in that it says, uh, if a slave is injured or disabled by his master, that slave is automatically given freedom. Now, to our ears, these laws sound terrible. Like, I expect you to think that, you know, it's great that slavery was allowed because, hey, you know, they got a day off every week. Why does this matter? It matters because I believe the best way to understand the Bible's teaching on slavery is to see that the Bible is consistently setting a new trajectory. When it comes to slavery, the Bible, as compared to the world around it, is consistently pointing in a progressive direction. Almost always more humane and more respectful than anyone else around them. And in the New Testament, that's even more true. Okay? So Paul tells slaves that if they can get their freedom, they should. Paul encourages a master to let his slave be free. Salvation itself is compared to freedom from slavery. And then most famously, Paul says several times that with Christ, there's neither slave nor free. So knowing this trajectory helps us to notice certain features in our passage today. Like Paul tells the slave masters how they ought to treat their slaves uh, without threats. Maybe that sounds like small potatoes, right? But uh, remember, in Paul's day, nobody told masters how to treat their slaves, except apparently Paul. And that verse 9 is a doozy. Paul has just told the slaves to treat their masters like how they would treat Jesus himself. And then he says this, Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Not only treat them with integrity or without threats, but masters, treat your slaves like you would treat Christ. And then for good measure, he adds, and don't forget that God is watching you. And he is your master. You know what that would have sounded like in the first century? Impossible. Radical. Or how about this one? We know that Paul says that there's neither slave nor free in Christ, which is a nice sort of thing to say. But you can already see that teaching is being put into practice here. 
you notice that he gives these instructions to the slaves. And then immediately after that, he gives these instructions to the slave masters. You know what that means. I mean, this letter would have been read in a, in a public gathering. It means they were all there together. The slaves and the masters sitting right next to each other. All right there. Same church, same service. This is radical. It's the same way, by the way, with the parent-child thing. In Roman culture, children were often little better than slaves. But they're right there in church with the parents. Paul dares to honor children by telling their parents to treat them well. How well does that go over, by the way, when somebody tells a parent how they should raise their kids? This is bold. Now, maybe it sounds obvious, treat kids well. I mean, we live in a world of sort of these helicopter parents, right, writing their college admission essays for their kids and, and, and protecting them from all negativity. But remember, the first question is not, how do you hear this? The first question is, how did they hear this passage? And with slaves and with children, and I would add also with women, Paul's instructions are incredibly honoring. They are ahead of their time. The reason I think it's important to talk about this trajectory, or the the Bible scholar William Webb calls it a redemptive movement, the reason it's important is that we actually do have to apply these texts to our lives. So at some point, we actually do have to ask, what is this passage saying to me? But if we were to apply the words for their plain meaning, it would seem like we're going backwards. Like slavery reestablished, really? That's why I think the best way to apply these passages is to try to follow their trajectory. To follow a redemptive movement. More freedom, more honor, not less. So obviously, I think Wilberforce was right on. I think he correctly understood that the trajectory of the Bible meant Christians should fight for abolition. In his day and age, you could go further than just treat your slave well. You could set him free. More freedom, more honor, not less. Thankfully, we all know that now. But I think the trajectory actually goes farther for us today. See, I don't think this teaching on women or children or slaves is just about women and children and slaves. I think Paul is suggesting, in a radical way for his time, a transformation of authority structures. What he's saying, treat each other like you would treat Christ himself. Whether you are typically among the powerless, right, like women or slaves or children, or if you are among the typically powerful, like men or parents or masters, Paul says we treat each other with respect and dignity, right? Verse 9, in the same way. 
So parents, don't exasperate your children. And children, honor your parents. Slaves, respect your masters. Masters, respect your slaves. Paul is saying we are Christians. And we all answer to a higher authority now. Christ is Lord, not the husband, not the parent. Christ is Lord of all of us. He is our authority. We answer to Him. And how does He use His authority? He uses it to save us. To save the powerless and to save the powerful. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Paul is taking the most mundane and ordinary and unquestioned relationships in the ancient world and he is daring to tell Christians to do even those things. To do even those things to consider even those relationships in light of their faith. Your faith doesn't just change the way you relate to God. If you're a boss, it changes the way you treat your employees. If you're a husband, it changes the way you treat your wife. If you're a kid, it changes the way you treat your parents. For a Christian, every part of life, every relationship needs to be re-examined in light of the fact that Christ is Lord. We follow the Bible's trajectory now. Where it goes deeper, we go deeper. Where it goes farther, we go farther. And so I wonder if the application of this passage today goes way beyond abolition of slavery. Christ is Lord over your home and your workplace, not just your church. So do you think it's okay for a boss to treat employees like interchangeable cogs to maximize profitability? Happens all the time. But is there a deeper integrity that is expected for Christian bosses? Do you think it's okay for kids to lie to their parents? Super common. But is there a deeper integrity for Christian kids? The ground is level at the foot of the cross. God's grace can save you no matter who you are. It is a gift for all who merely acknowledge they need the gift. As Wilberforce's Pastor Newton would say, that gift is amazing. It's for everyone who knows they're lost and needs to be found. For everyone who knows they're blind and needs to see. 
slaves and masters. Kids and parents. Women and men. We're all saved the same way. By putting our trust in our one true Lord, Jesus. So God invites us to live with uncommon integrity. Respectful. Compassionate. As though in every interaction we were living in the presence of Christ himself. And if as a result we are hated like Wilberforce, or threatened and killed like so many after him, Paul reminds us, we weren't working for the bosses of this world anyway. We answer higher. So we can know that when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we'll have no less days to sing God's praise. First begun. Let's pray together.